Please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, the very last verses in Ecclesiastes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, we are back in Ecclesiastes. Uh, we have today and then two weeks from the today, Andy will be preaching next week on freedom in Christ. You'll want to be here for that. Two weeks from today, we will finish up this series called Wind Chasers and Worshippers. Uh, a quest for significance. And we have learned uh, in these past weeks that even if in our quest for significance we try everything under heaven that there is to try, we will never find our meaning here for our maker is our meaning. Our maker is our meaning. And so in just the last couple of weeks, we have learned what it means that the maker is our meaning. According to Solomon, we must remember that God exists. We must reverence who God is. We must obey what God says. And we must enjoy whatever God gives. Those are the, the core uh, that is the core content of a faith that can survive in a world gone mad. Now, all along, uh, we've been welcoming questions and having uh, you text in your questions, and you can uh, do that this morning. I think the number will be up here. I'm not sure we'll get to questions, trying to sense how the Lord is going to lead us at the end here this morning. Uh, but I do, wanna, do want to... Uh, answer a question, address a question that was submitted a couple of weeks ago that we just didn't have time for. And the question went like this, could it be that there really is only vanity and no real purpose? Is it possible that we look for a God or invent a God because he would allow us to feel better about ourselves? Just because it would be nice for a God to exist doesn't mean he actually does. It's a very good question. The last part of that is true, folks. Just because it would be nice for God to exist doesn't mean that he does. But there's a question here. And it's one that I, I suppose can be theoretically possible that God is merely a human invention to make us feel good about ourselves. Now I say might be theoretically possible. The more I think about it, the more I realize it's impossible. 
uh, for it is impossible for God not to exist. I won't go into why right here. If you want to know other reasons, you can ask me later. Uh, but let's just for the moment think for argument's sake that maybe God is just an invention, a human invention to help us feel better and feel better about ourselves. I would suggest to you, my friends, that that doesn't work. It doesn't work for two reasons. One, because it doesn't explain the evidence. And two, because it doesn't explain the Christian God. It doesn't explain the evidence. We saw that a couple of weeks ago from chapter 3, that we have the echo of eternity in our heart. God has written eternity into us. It's part of our psyche. It's part of our awareness. We, we know there is the eternal. And that's why it shows up in every single human heart and experience at some point or other, everywhere on the planet, Everybody has an awareness of God. It could be in a moment of crisis and desperation that they cry out to God. It could be a time where they are lying out under the open sky at night, uh, under the brilliance and uh, the dazzle of the stars, and they just realize there's somebody out there. there. There is in all of us those moments when we are aware of the eternal. There is also a universal human hunger for purpose and a longing for more. We saw a couple of weeks ago that to say there is no God would not explain the evidence that's, that's found in nature through its design and beauty and conscience. If you remember, we have this conscience, and everybody does within, that reminds us of what is right and wrong and suggests a higher law. There is such a thing as outrage, where we at times, we feel outraged at evil and, and this sense that not only are certain things mistakes or, or, or unfortunate, they are evil. And where do we get that sense of evil from, if, if not from a God who loves what is good and hates what is evil? There are times of exquisite joy and beauty and love that signal to us that there is such a thing as beauty with a capital B and love with a capital L and joy with a capital J. Galen and I last evening had the pleasure of attending uh, a concert in which uh, Colette and uh, Caleb uh, Cavazos played the violin, and we sat there, I sat there, tears flowing down my cheeks at the, the beauty, the exquisite beauty being produced by a bunch of teenagers. Amazing moment. An awareness in that moment that there is beauty. There is a song with a capital S. There is a songwriter. There's an awareness of this in our hearts. There's a longing, an insatiable craving for more than what this world offers that strongly evidences the fact that there is more than what this world offers. All this evidence points to the fact that God is not someone invented by us, but God is someone who has revealed himself to us, proclaimed himself to us, proven himself to us in our hearts. So that faith is not a leap without evidence 
Faith is a leaning into the evidence and a surrender to the evidence, a submission to the evidence that has been given and revealed by God. So the idea that God is our invention doesn't explain the evidence. And very quickly, folks, it doesn't explain the Christian God. The idea that, that somehow or other God has been created, invented to make us feel good about ourselves and feel better. Folks, um, that works for a lot of gods that are out there. Uh, that works for the Hindu gods and the Buddhist gods and a lot of other spiritualities that at the end of the day make the claim that really we are a part of God. That makes you feel better about yourself. The Christian God doesn't exactly make you feel better about yourself. The Christian God is intimidating. He is a God who is absolutely holy. And he's everywhere. You can't escape him. He's in your space. I don't know about you, I don't like people in my space. You know, every once in a while, I have a conversation with somebody who insists on every time I turn my head at all, they turn with me. So eyes are meeting eyes, nose is meeting nose, uh, and jaws meeting jaw, and they're only about six and a half inches away. They're in my space. Get out of my space. You know, this is what happens in elevators. Get out of my space. This, I, I have a pet peeve when Galen and I go to see a movie. We love getting there and er, early enough to get our choice of seats and love when there's nobody else in the theater. It's the best movie experience. Nobody else in the theater. Take your choice. So this has happened to us more than once where we've, we've gone, we've take, I like way in the back, you kind of just see everything there. Nobody, not a single other person in the whole theater until 30 seconds before the movie starts and this, this person or two walk in, there's 500 seats to choose from and they sit in the seats right in front of us. <laughs> Get out of my space. That... There's plenty of space out there. We, we, we don't like it when people crowd us. We don't like it when people get in our place. We don't like people invading our privacy. God, the Christian God, is the one who more than anyone else invades our privacy. He is everywhere we are. He sees everything we see. He hears everything we say. He knows everything we think. We have no secrets with, from God. That is not a God you would create to feel better about yourself. No human would create that kind of God. But you say, well, isn't God love? Yes, he is. Isn't the Christian God love? Yes, he is. However, even as he gives his love to us, he makes sure to go out of his way to tell us we don't deserve it. Doesn't do much for self-esteem. In fact, he says the condition upon which you can receive and experience and enjoy my love is that you admit that you don't deserve it and you cry out for mercy. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone who deserves my love. 
You'll be loved in Him. You won't be loved because you're so good. You'll be loved because He is good. So even when He gives us His love, it's not to build up our self-esteem. Thankfully, it's still real love. It's real love. He loves us. But the Christian God is not a God who makes us feel good about ourselves. He is a God at the end of the day who can and does make us feel very good because we know we are His if we're trusting in Christ, but in a humbling kind of way. This is not a God that humans would create. This is not a God that even humans could create, for He is far surpassing anything than human mind can comprehend. So, is it possible, theoretically, that God is our invention to make us feel better about ourselves? Well, I don't think it's even possible theoretically, but if you want to argue about it, I'll say theoretically possible, but it doesn't fit the evidence and it doesn't explain the Christian God who is beyond all else unfathomable, the true and living God. The true and living God. Now that's all... has nothing... Well. I was going to say it has nothing to do with my message. No, it has something to do with my message, but it's all prelude. No extra charge. (laughs) Just answering a question that was asked. Um, But it brings us back, doesn't it, to the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. The heart of this book is what is, what, what matters? Where do we find our significance? Where do we find ultimate meaning? And the answer is we we find it in God. We remember that God exists. We reverence who God is. We obey what God says. We enjoy whatever God gives. I I am struck with the simplicity of the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Now think about it. For 11 chapters, the author has led us along all of these winding paths in the pursuit of meaning and significance, wealth and pleasure and philosophy and power and authority and politics and justice and religion and all these things. And every path has ended up a dead end. It's, it's led to nowhere. It's led to him just saying it's all vanity. And so 11 chapters of vanity, and then chapter 12, and there are these three simple statements made. These three simple imperatives. Chapter 12 and verse 1, remember your Creator. Chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, fear God and keep His Commandments. There you have it. There you have it. This is the end of the matter. This is, this is the conclusion to it all. After all these questions, all this uncertainty, all this confusion, here it is. Very simple. Remember God. Fear God. Obey God. And as we'll see in two weeks, enjoy whatever God gives. 
You don't, you don't need to be a philosopher, folks. You don't, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't need to be brilliant. You don't need to turn this into anything sophisticated or complicated. You want to know the meaning of life? Remember that God exists. No matter what's going on, no matter how hard it is, no matter how confusing it is, no matter how much it makes you weep, no matter how angry it makes you feel, remember that God exists and reverence who God is and obey what God says and enjoy what God gives. And you will find your meaning. You will find significance. You know, it's, it brought to mind, the simplicity of this brought to mind some words that John Piper has written that I believe I've read to you before, but they just are worth repeating at this moment. They go like this, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. He is talking here about significance. He is talking about the meaning of life, living a life worth living. And he is saying it doesn't have to be complicated. There need to be a few great, majestic unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things that you know and be set on fire by those things. What are those things, Dr. Piper? Remember that God exists. Reverence who God is. Obey what God says and enjoy whatever God gives. Be mastered. Be ruled and ignited by these things and you will find the meaning of life. It's that simple. I'm not saying it's easy. But it is that simple. It's the third of these that we'll look at for a few minutes now. Obey what he says. The text says to us, fear God and Keep His commandments. Keep His commandments. It was John Newton, he who wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace, who also wrote these words. God made us to be happy. But as He made us for Himself and gave us a capacity and a vastness of desire which only He Himself can satisfy, The very constitution and frame of our nature render happiness impossible to us unless it is found in Him and in obedience to His laws. In other words, 
we discover the joy for which we were made when, among other things, we remember that we are under authority. Keep His commandments. There's a call to obedience. There's the significance of obedience. And then I want to share some of the priorities of obedience as we fill out this message. First of all, the call to obedience. Keep His commands. Here here is a command to keep God's commands. Here God commands us to do what He says. He says, I have laws. Do them. Do them. Don't dismiss this as Old Testament stuff. Commands are everywhere in the Bible from the front cover to the back cover. Commands are a part of life. Our maker is our lawgiver. He expects us to obey Him. You and I are under authority. You and I are not independent. We're not autonomous. Fundamentally, our identity and our meaning is that we are called to obey. Believing Christian, this is especially so for you. For if you are a Christian, it means you are a disciple of Christ. Just this week, I had the privilege, as did Andy, of uh, attending an event where Dr. Tony Evans was speaking. And uh, he gave this definition of a disciple. He said, a disciple is a visible and verbal follower of Christ." who lives his or her life under the authority of God's Word for the advancement of God's kingdom. A disciple is a visible and verbal follower of Christ who lives his or her life under the authority of God's Word. He keeps God's commands and for the advancement of God's kingdom. This is God's call on our life. We are called to obedience. Now what I want us to see is the the significance that's found in this obedience. The significance for our lives, that that which adds meaning and fullness and joy to our lives. He says in verse 13 of chapter 12, the end of the matter, that is the conclusion. Here's the conclusion. After all else has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. After all this pursuit, as I've said, all this pursuit of vanity, what's the conclusion, Solomon? Fear God, keep His commandments. Fear God, obey God. This is, he goes on to say, the whole duty of man, probably better translated, this is the duty of all mankind or of all people. This is the end of the matter. This is the conclusion for every single person on earth. No exceptions. We're all here to obey God. We are all here to do what God says. And if we ignore it, if we despise it, if we rebel against it, we will drown under the waves of meaninglessness and vanity. Our meaning comes in answering the question, who's your boss? Rightly. Who's your boss? Who runs your life? Who's in charge? Is God your king? Is God Lord? Friends, this this has tremendous, massive, personal 
pastoral significance for your life and mine. You see, when the meaninglessness of life, the seeming meaninglessness of life hits us, when things seem senseless and God allows things that seem unfair, we tend to react in ways that do not help us and do not honor Him. And this text suggests to us that when these things happen, when life seems pointless, there are two things that have to change. One is our question, and the other is our posture. The question that has to change is from God, why are you doing this to me? To, Lord, what are you asking me to do? Did you, did you hear that? The, the question when trial comes, when hardship comes, when the seemingly arbitrary and random and unfair happen to us, the question to ask is not primarily, God, why are you doing this to me? But Lord, what do you want me to do in this trial? You see, we need to stop focusing on God, what are your reasons for this trial? And start focusing on, Lord, what are your commands in this trial? This is a fundamentally different way, about looking, a way to look at life. I remind you folks, this is, this is not theoretical for me. Not theoretical for me. Too often our uh, well, in my own experience, there has been, as I shared with you last week, there has been one trial after another. There have been deep trials. There are deep trials. There are things going on in my life right now that if you got me alone, uh, it would only take about 10 seconds to make me cry. There are trials and there are afflictions that Galen and I wake up to every morning, and we have woken up to for 10, 20, and all, 30 years. Every morning. They just don't go away. And I've had to wrestle with this. I can, I can linger over the question, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Or I can ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? I could ask the question, what are the reasons, God? Or I could ask the question, Lord, in the midst of this trial, what are your commands? What is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to live in the midst of the trial? See, that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, he is saying you know, you're not going to get the reasons. You're not going to get the why, but... Fear God and keep His commands. 
Focus on what's in your control to do. You have no control over your circumstances. You have no control over the things that go on in your life or in your world. You can't change those things. Focus on what you can control. Fear God and keep His commandments. Do what He commands you to do. And folks, uh, this, is, this is wonderfully freeing. Here, here's here's how, it, how it has gotten way down into the, the roots of, of my own life. Um, as I have shared, uh, you know, I have a headache. I, it's, it's been 28 plus years now, every day, all day. Um, nerve damage done with a virus 28 years ago. I was 30 years old when the headache started. And I'm 58 now. And this is, this is real. This is intense. Right now, it's intense. Um, I learned a long time ago that there wasn't much value in asking why. But there was tremendous value in asking God what. What do you want me to do with this? What does obedience look like with a nonstop headache? How, do, how am I to live, Lord, for your glory? How am I to bring honor to you in the midst of the pain? What would you have me to do? And in just glorious, humbling, um, mysterious ways, um, it has led to peace. There are things I can't control, but I can fear God and keep His commandments. And know that He, as God, will fulfill all His promises to me. And He will be faithful, and He will be good, and He will be trustworthy, even if I can't understand Him. Solomon is pointing us, folks, in the direction of things profound here. Simple, but profound. We get all caught up in the whys. We get all caught up begging and screaming and hollering for the answers. And then we just end up being frustrated and in despair because they don't come. But there are some answers to the question, what would you have me do? There are commands there are things for us to do. Now you say, what commands? Solomon doesn't really give them to us here, does he? Just, gonna, just keep God's commandments. Um, and last count, I'm aware that there are over a thousand commands in the New Testament. And who knows how many in the Old Testament. Thankfully, a lot of those don't apply directly to us anymore. Um, but there's a lot of commands. So you may be wondering, uh, uh, how do I, where do I start? I want to try to give you the top six commands real quick, all right? Top six commandments. You said, I thought there were ten. Well, no, the ten, they fit into the six. Jesus was asked the question one time, what is the greatest commandment? 
the most important commandment. And Jesus answered in Mark 12, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we get the top two commandments together here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Folks, no matter what is happening, no matter how hard it is, no matter how confusing it is, press in to know your God and love your God. Love Him with all of your heart. Realize this is the most important thing in this trial. Not that I am delivered, but that I love God more. That I love God more. That is what matters. That is what matters. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which means, contrary to what many say, not saying it's not a commandment to love yourself. You're already doing that. It is a commandment to love others in ways similar to the way you already love yourself. In other words, all the care and all the attention and all the provision that you send in your own direction, send it out to others. Love, uh, love your neighbors. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 1 and 2. How are you doing on those two? I, I know, I get it. Not very well. There hasn't been a second of your life when you've loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every day of your life, you fail to love your neighbor as yourself. So the third commandment's really important. We find it in Acts chapter 16. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here is the commandment we need to hear. Repent. Why do we need to repent? Because we have failed to love the Lord our God with all our heart. And we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Which means we are guilty. We are living for ourselves more than we are living for God, more than we are living for others, we need to repent because our sin and our self-centeredness matter to God. He is not indifferent to them. He doesn't shrug his shoulders over our sin. He is commanding us to repent. He is commanding us to turn from self and sin and go to Him. Repent. You repent. But then what? Commandment number four, Acts 16 and verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Commandment. Love the Lord your God. Ugh, not doing that perfectly. Love your neighbor. Failing there. Repent. All right, Lord, I, I'm aware. I wear I'm a sinner. I'm aware I'm selfish. I'm aware of my guilt. Um, I turn from it, but where do I turn? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
believe that Jesus, God's eternal Son, came here to earth and died for your sins. Believe that God atoned for your sins with his own blood on the cross. Believe that God rescued you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Believe that Jesus earned your way into heaven. Believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. Submit to him as Savior and Lord. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Commandment one, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Commandment two, love your neighbor. Commandment three, repent. Commandment four, believe. Commandment five, time is running out on me here, I know. Um, Abbreviating 1 Peter 1, be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Be holy. Be like God who is holy. That's the call of God upon our life. Be holy. Be holy. And then a sixth commandment that I believe needs to be right there. Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be a disciple-making disciple. Having repented of your sin, trusted in Christ, now become a man or a woman or a young person who goes out into the world and makes a difference for Jesus Christ. These are the commandments of God. There are thousands of them, but this summarizes them. Love God and others. Repent for not doing that very well at all. Believe that Jesus died for those sins. Be holy because God, your Father, is holy. And be a disciple maker in this world. When life is hard, when things go horribly wrong, when questions have no answers, when trials are deeper than words can express, when Everything seems futile and empty and pointless. Let us remember that God exists. Let us reverence who God is. Let us obey what God says. And as I say, in two weeks, we'll come back. There's this wonderful twist in the book of Ecclesiastes. That takes us to an unexpected place. Let us enjoy whatever he gives. And that's the end of the matter. That's what matters in life. Let's pray.